Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, let's begin the next program. So I didn't get to say my name. I'm Heather, <laughs> and uh, I'm thrilled to to be back uh, with this wonderful community here. Uh, I did come down from Spirit Rock this morning, but I actually now live in Nevada City, California, in the Sierra foothills, which is about three hours from here. Uh, 
And so it's why I don't come through as often to, uh, to visit and explore these teachings as uh, I did when I lived in the Bay Area a number of years ago. But I love this community so much that um, I have an agreement actually with the schedulers that when I schedule my next year of teaching, which uh, is a, a meditation teacher, we schedule a year in advance, I look for Sunday mornings that I'm in the Bay Area, that I'm not already teaching a retreat or something uh, to be here, uh, which kind of leads me to how I ended up being here this morning is um, this visit to the Bay Area has been primarily for my own practice. So I just finished sitting a retreat yesterday um, at Spirit Rock that was just a week long. And um, what that means is that I guess you could say I'm breaking my silence with you. <laughs> uh, and those of you that are not familiar with residential retreat practice and the inside meditation tradition, which is what I um, train in and practice and teach, uh, when we do retreats, uh, we don't talk. We, we hold what's called a, a noble silence, a nobility of silence. So it's not meant to, to silence anybody, but it's really in the spirit of the world is so much with us and the speed at which our lives go and the information that is constantly flowing through us that gets kind of trapped and stuck within us. To just take a pause from that for some rest and rejuvenation and to turn inward and say, okay, you know, here I am, uh, this being, living a life, trying to be of service as best I can and all the relationships, all the sense of who I think I am and just have some time to explore that without a lot of external interruption. We call noble silence. So I'm breaking my noble silence with you, which I, I must confess, even though I'm a full-time teacher, um, it's a bit vulnerable. I always find it a bit vulnerable to come off of my own period of retreat uh, and then come and sit in a room where there's, you know, however many of you there are looking at me, and nobody's looked at me for a week. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of disappear in some way. Um, so you can look, it's fine. Uh, it's part of, you know, part of being functional in this world is that we get to see each other, that we get to take breaks and go on an internal spiritual journey, whatever that means to us, and, and to kind of step back and then we come out and we see each other. Yeah. And um, not so much, a few of you I know in a personal way, but also in a more universal way, uh, I, do, I do see you. Yeah. There's a way that I carry this community. I, I teach in, I don't know, something like 25 different communities. I always think of this community from time to time on a Sunday morning. There's, there's just some scene, and I think that that scene that, that I feel is because of the way that, you know, and not to idealize any community, but the way that I see over the years of visiting here that our community here, this community here, sees each other, you know, and sees uh, ourselves. And so when I come here as a visitor, you know, and as a woman visitor, I feel very welcomed. I feel very seen. And that kind of feeling seen carries on. 
I think we know this in our lives. When people see us, when people welcome us, when people include us in our fullness, uh, we carry them in our hearts and our minds in a different way than the kind of pass-throughs. We go to a, a store and we drop our money on the counter and grab that thing and there was no seeing there in that moment. You know, we don't tend to carry that person with us because they weren't seen to begin with. You know, and they probably don't carry us because there wasn't a lot of seeing there. A different way of relating. So here we are at Mother's Day. And uh, it's an interesting part of the process of retreat sometimes for some of us, is that the concepts and ideas um, about the functional world that we take to be very uh, real and solid uh, start to dissolve a bit. We kind of loosen our grip on them. Uh, if you haven't been on a residential retreat, another example would be uh, you know, something like going backpacking or even just um, taking a long walk somewhere or going somewhere where there's some space and some sense of supportive alone time. And, you know, it doesn't really matter so much there whether it's 11.14 or 11.30 or 3.30. We start to loosen our grip on these kind of, what, contexts and frameworks that hold our lives, that are very supportive in terms of us interacting with each other and getting our jobs done and all that. And we can also relax and not have such a death grip on them as if, you know, uh, I don't get there two minutes before I need to get there. It's, I'm not okay, and it's not okay, and there's some big problem. So as I was driving here this morning, I was very aware before the retreat that I was teaching on Mother's Day. But I was driving here, and I was thinking, okay, it's Mother's Day. It's Mother's Day. Is it Mother's Day? You know? <laughs> There was this way that I could hold it lightly. So I was very grateful when you said, you know, welcome on this Mother's Day. I thought, ah, verification. <laughs> you know? I popped out of the retreat on the correct day. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's nice. It, it, retreat centers, when you're in a group retreat, I do a lot of um, self-retreat. The difference between a self-retreat and a group retreat is a self-retreat, you actually have to know what day it is to leave wherever you are. Nobody's going to come telling you. At a group retreat like Spirak, they say, okay, now it's over. Clean up your room, be of service, greet somebody, and bye, go home. (laughs) So different kinds of, of ways of walking the spiritual path. So I was thinking about mother. Yeah. And I was thinking about it in three ways. Uh, One is the personal sense of mother. Another is the cultural sense of mother. Uh, And the third one is more the universal or archetypal sense of mother. And I don't think I'll be talking for the whole time on what the essence of mother or the archetype of mother or whatever you want to call it. But I do want to call it in because here we are. Uh, In this culture, we'll just start with uh, American culture, Uh, this is an acknowledged day where we tend to carry uh, mother more in the foreground of our hearts and our minds. Sometimes we, uh, you know, engage in that in some sort of action. If If we happen to have ever known our mother in our life, if our mother still happens to be alive in a physical body, we might make that call or 
send that uh, email Hallmark card or you know have a breakfast. I'm sure that um, holding the wider sense of our community right now who um, isn't here because maybe they're with a family member yeah. and doing that practice is a, you know, just another part of our practice. Um, so there's that piece of it, that in our culture here. Um, then there's the personal. And uh, some of us never met our mother, our, you know, our birth mother. Some of us have multiple mothers, uh, both by kind of formal ties of relationship, but also just, um, you know, the mothers in our lives. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, we, we were both on the March month-long retreat at Spirit Rock. I was teaching the retreat. You were uh, sitting the retreat. And uh, Sylvia Borstein, who was one of my colleagues at one point, I just had this memory of this, she made such a sweet comment. Um, and I've had a 20-year relationship with her. I started as her student. Uh, she taught me the loving-kindness practices and some of the other practices of heart and mind, compassion, joy, equanimity. Uh, and then later on, she trained me to teach them and gave me kind of her version of transmission of, of how to convey them and support others in cultivating that in themselves. And now we teach together quite frequently. She made a comment. She said, yeah, when I first met Heather, uh, it was sort of as if I was her mother. And these days, it's sort of as if she is my mother. And we do that for each other. We do that for each other. So it can be personal in different ways and in much wider context. I mean, for me... My own um, personal birth mother, who hasn't been alive for almost 15 years now, a very challenging relationship. Uh, she's my muse. She's my first uh, teacher on the spiritual path. Uh, still my hardest teacher on the spiritual path. Uh, not easy. So we need to include the, the wholeness of our relationships, all of our intimate relationships. So I'm just talking about mother because it's Mother's Day. I could have just said the whole exact same thing and said father. Yeah, really. Yeah. So the personal, uh, the cultural. When we begin to merge cultures, um, which is, you know, to me one of the riches of an urban area like San Francisco, the Mission District. Um, when we begin to merge cultures in terms of these meditation traditions, we're merging in a general way, east and west. And so in a general way, in Eastern cultures, uh, parents are held in uh, what? A different context than we uh, sometimes hold in Western culture. So very venerated, very revered, uh, a lot of show of outward respect, respect in action. And so it's part of the lineages that are being passed to us and we are retranslating into our Western Dharma here. You know, but they're there, and sometimes we bump up against them, you know, especially if we have edges around you know, kind of big outward shows of respect and reverence and do, do they really deserve it, and you know, we can hit an edge there. Uh, so also, how do we make this our own? How do we bring it together? and live it from an authentic place in us. And so for me, one of the ways that expands the view is to take it out of 
just the box of these are my two birth parents, you know, and start to look at it as, uh, you know, the, the parental archetype, the mother archetype, the father archetype, which we all carry. All of us carry that in us, whether we've uh, parented or not, whether we've been parented or not, <laughs> uh, we all carry it. So I like to go back to some of the, the formal chants uh, just to call in the tradition and also because I like to sing. You know, so it's a way of bringing up that reverence without, um, you know, anyway. So uh, one of the classic ones about mother, some of you know, comes from the Metta Sutta. And the Metta Sutta was the Buddhist teaching in response to a group of monks who were at the beginning of a three-month-long rains retreat in the foothills of the Himalayas, and they had found a conducive place for their meditation where they felt supported in community, in their own community, and by the, the kind of, uh, we could almost say, group of allies supporting them, you know, because the whole village was really playing the role of ally um, in giving them food and medicine and places to stay, etc., it all looked pretty good. They're doing their meditation practice, and lo and behold, what happened was uh, they started to become uh, quite bothered by, and I'm not asking you to believe this, this is just the story. Um, they were bothered by what we could say are some of the unseen forces in the universe. So in the Buddhist context, we might call them devas. In the West, we might call them angels. But if you don't like any of that, it doesn't work for you. Um, the way that, another way that I hold it is just, there's more going on here than what the eye can perceive. Yeah. And, and any of us that, you know, just for, to make it very, very user-friendly, any of us that wear glasses, I've, I've had very poor eyesight most of my life. You take them off, and you really can't see much, right? But it's there. And you put them back on, you realize, oh yeah, the, the objects that I can't see are there. <laughs> it's almost like that, uh, saying, you know, there are more than these five senses of what can be perceived. You know? So I'm not asking you to believe it. I'm just saying, ah, we could be a little bigger than um, our five senses. You know? What are the five senses? Sight, sound, touch, smell, um, taste. And then the sixth is the mind. So these devas came, and they thought that the monks were just coming for a short visit. But the monks were there for three months of meditation practice. So they felt their turf was invaded, and they started uh, trying to find ways to get rid of them. So first they made scary noises to try to scare the monks away. And, you know, the monks were quite stable in their meditation. They thought, ah, oh, scary noises, you know, I can handle this. <laughs> no big deal. So then the devas started producing foul smells which, you know, we're not so fun to meditate to, but monks <laughs> kept going. Uh, and finally, the devas produced um, uh, scary images. You know, they started influencing the monks' meditation. I'm not asking you to believe any of it, okay? It's just a story. But I think it's a useful story, even though it's a little bit far out there. Because what happened was the monks got so scared, they ran down the foothills of the Himalayas and said, you know, teacher, teacher, um, we can't meditate here. It's too noisy, it's too smelly, and it's too scary. <laughs> um, you know, and the Buddha just said, friends, 
you know, not to worry. That is the perfect place for your meditation practice to advance. Have I got a practice for you? Loving kindness. And the metta sutta were his words, his teachings of not how to practice loving kindness. And some of us know some traditional practices, but but actually the essence of it. You know, the essence of it is an essence of holding our ethical conduct with tremendous care and respect, whatever that means to us. Um, Practices of the meditation of bringing a warm, kind, friendly, open attention to our experience as it's happening, moment by moment. And also the wisdom aspect, that when we bring an attitude of openness and of friendliness to our experience, um, there's a blending of wisdom that arises. And I think of it as an internal wisdom, but I also think of it as a community wisdom, in relationship. And so the line about the mother from this Metta Sutta, some of you I'm sure know it quite well. It goes, Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. We don't need to be a physical mother, a biological mother, to understand that. I haven't given birth biologically. I've raised two kids, but they didn't come from me, from this body. We know this. It's like, even as a mother protects with her life, what do we protect with our life? That's actually kind of an interesting question. What do you protect with your life? And maybe I don't mean literally. You know? Maybe I don't mean the circumstance where we step in the road in front of the ongoing car because somebody just dropped something and they didn't see the car coming and the car didn't see them and we like, you know, put ourselves in the way of. Or some of the activist work that we do. That might be another example. What do we protect with our life? And what do we protect in here with our life? What is so precious to us that, you know, we would go out on the far edges of our internal world to say, I'm going to support and protect this authenticity, this essence in me. so, So I ask you, I don't know whether anybody will have anything that comes to mind. What do you protect with your life? As your kind of archetypal child. <coughs> Anything come to mind? My heart. Your heart? Yeah. Anything else you feel so fierce about? Yeah, that you just like, this is the core of it for me. And I want to hold this with complete respect and reverence. Is there anything like that in your life or in your being? Somebody bold enough to say? <coughs> yeah, it's vulnerable to say. My integrity. Integrity, yeah. My negative self-image. Yeah, negative self-image. <laughs> wow. What else? 
power of beauty. Mm. Yeah, healing power of beauty. You know, the bottom line of the teaching on loving kindness, uh, there's a famous quote from the Buddha that I'm sure some of you have heard. That's the first part of a quote. It says, if you look the whole world over, there's no one more worthy of your love and kindness than yourself. It's a beautiful quote. Um, but it's only the first part of the quote. I always thought to myself with that quote, I would feel very heartened and inspired. And then I would think to myself, wait a second. The Buddha didn't live in 2012 in California. What's he talking about? You know, I don't think this was like a self-help message. What, what's he talking about? You look the whole world over. Every being, there's no one more worthy of your love and kindness than yourself. And the second part of the quote kind of responds to that. Because the full quote is, if you look the whole world over, there's no one more worthy than your love and your kindness than yourself. Likewise, one might hold every other as dear. One who genuinely loves oneself could never intentionally harm another. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Because when we start to look at the ways that we, you know, forget how the world others us, you know, individually, interpersonally, um, at a community level, that is a pain. Look how we other ourselves. That is also a pain. The way that we reject and say, no, this is not included, and I don't want this here. You know, the mind's habitual nature is to hold on to what is going to give us a basic <laughs> sense of safety and a basic sense of okayness uh, so that we can survive this human life, you know, and maybe thrive in this human life. And it grasps onto it with a death grip, you know, as if we lose, you know, this this object, this person, this job, this thing. I mean, we could just keep filling in the blank. We're not going to be okay. We're just going to die. And you know how that feels, I bet. You know, I do. It's like, oh, if I don't have this thing, I'm just going to die. Obviously, most things are not a physical life or death issue, but that feeling of not okayness to the point of dying over it internally um, is excruciating. So it's the grasping, then the rejecting is, I can't bear this. If I include this in the heart of friendliness, and I bring a friendly, open attention to it, um, you know, maybe it's, I'm going to die again. It's too painful. And if somebody else sees that, they're not going to embrace me. They're not going to bring an open, warm, friendly attention to me, because I'm not okay. We're so human. We're so imperfect. We could just go around the room and tell our stories, our human imperfection, and be very, very real. Truth-telling takes a lot of courage. So we grasp, we reject, and then we have the possibility of a warm, open, friendly attention, where then out of that, when that impulse to do something that we know we know it's unskillful, but man, can't we build a case about why it's a good idea to do it? <laughs> yeah, we can build such a case. We know it's not skillful. But oh, maybe on the continuum of 
this is perfectly skillful and this is perfectly unskillful. It's at a 50% point, so maybe that doesn't count. You know, I, could, I could do a lot worse. So I'll take the middle way of unskillfulness. <laughs> you know, and we do. We do. And it's okay because we're human. But when we actually catch it and we go, that thing I'm about to say to that person is totally habitual and reactive. And I know I'm about to say it, and I know it's going to not cause anything but harm for them. And I caught it, and I could actually zip the lip. Then we zip the lip, because we realize, ah, one who has full respect and inclusion of our humanness is, you know, not going to go try to take out somebody else through thought, through action, or through speech. And of course, if we take this to a wider scale, we're talking about our world here. What we're doing here in this community is just part of the world. But all we can do is our own work and then come together with other people doing the work and support them to do the work so that the work gets bigger and bigger and bigger. All aspects of it, you know, forget the Dharma. Dharma is one word for a worldwide movement of what we're doing. We're trying to wake up. We've always been trying to wake up. We always will be trying to wake up. We're never going to get to check that one off our to-do list. That's okay. It's okay. You know, and it's interesting because in another chant in the tradition, it's a chant of understanding that we're part of something larger than ourselves. It's very, very important that we bring a healthy level of openness and friendliness and fundamental respect to who we are. Yeah. Uh, and then we're part of a bigger us-ness. Uh, and in terms of being part of a bigger us-ness, when we come together here on a Sunday morning, when we come together here every week, when we go out and do the other activities that we do as a community here, um, we're creating a, um, a field of, you could call it intention, you could call it energy. You could call it power. That's spreading. It's spreading. And so in that spirit, there's also this chant called the sharing of blessings, which in the traditional teachings might be called the dedication of merit. And what it acknowledges is that it's impossible to do this practice by ourselves alone or for ourselves alone. It's actually not possible. We couldn't be sitting here and coming back over and over, whether it's coming back to our sangha or our community, or coming back to the breath, if we happen to follow the breath, coming back to um, our own innate sense of basic goodness, if that's something that resonates for us. We couldn't come back without each other. You know? And the reason that it includes all beings is, well, for an example, like I said about my mom. Now, it would have been very, very easy to not hold her in her wholeness. You know, when I was a kid, she died when I was 23 years old, so my relationship with her was never a particularly adult relationship because she passed away, uh, except in the current relationship that we have, which doesn't include her having a body. You know, I mean, it's not as if this stuff ends because the body goes. You know, whether we're talking about our relationship with our parents or our partners, or, you know, even the mind stream. 
but you know, let's let's, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> too complicated. Too much belief might be necessary. Um, you know, so there we are. We're in this field. We couldn't do it by ourselves alone. I had to hold her in her wholeness, in the fact that she was a teacher for me, not just in her wisdom and in her heartfulness, but in her profound brokenness. Uh, and in her profound brokenness, she was very, very broken. But there's a wholeness. We're supporting each other. We're sharing the blessing of our practice, not just when we offer somebody some good advice, not just when we have an advanced moment of active listening, not just when we have the capacity to give a hug, not just fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, but also when we're in our brokenness. And we actually allow that to be revealed and to let somebody see that, and to let somebody be there with that, and hold that. And it's a mess. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. You know, and yet it's part of our humanness. And it's part of the field of sharing the blessings of our practice in our humanness. I love that the Buddha was a human being. He wasn't a god. He wasn't a deva. He was a human being. You know, he had backaches. He had headaches. He had all kinds of family problems. He lost his mother a week after he was born. Human, just like us. Just like us. So I I take that as inspiration. I'll confess to you, I, I didn't use a single part of the Dharma talk that I so carefully brought you. <laughs> you know, it's, there's something about coming out of retreat. It has to be now. It can't be something I thought of last week. No, it's right now. Each of us is meeting this moment fresh right now. And if we pass the secret microphone around the room, what is happening right now is so varied. I'm always very touched by that. It's it's such a privilege for me to travel around the country and sit down with um, communities of people, such a wide range of communities of people, so many faces, um, not just literally but metaphorically, And it blows my mind how we come together and in some general way we all look so put together. People come in, they sit down, they're relatively quiet, you know, a chair, a cushion, a posture. Uh, You know, it it looks pretty put together, right? (laughs) But if we were really honest, and, and we asked right now, you know, how many of us in our community here today are, you know, burning or just tearing with some unrevealed pain? 
How honest do we want to be here? How many of us are sitting with some burning or tearing apart in this moment in terms of our expression? You know, nobody's running around the room screaming right now, so... I mean, it could happen. It does happen every once in a while. You know, it's like, okay, it's one of those teaching days. Take a breath. Is the heart large enough to hold the whole thing? But how many of us? I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you, and you don't have to be, you don't have to raise your hand. But you know, how many of us? I'm gonna raise my own hand. There's something I'm sitting with. You know, it's not the most horrible thing in my life. I'm sitting with it. How many of us? In the body, the mind. And how many of us are sitting in this moment with some um, really beautiful joy or um, just feeling of well-being? You're not running around the room in, in ecstasy, trying to spew it to everybody. You know, you're not, your grin isn't going all the way up past your ears to make sure that everybody knows how happy you are. But how many of us are just sitting with some kind of joy or sense of well-being this morning? I mean, I'm, I'm deliberately using extremes. Um, we could do everything in between. How many of us is the body a forward edge for um, practice today? Yeah, some experience of the body. Yeah. So... I want to make sure to leave a little bit of time to uh, hear from us, you know, because we just take turns in all these roles, whether we're taking a turn mothering, fathering, parenting, childing, teaching, learning, practicing, being totally confused. I mean, we're just taking turns. So it's, it's our Dharma teaching. It's our Dharma conversation. That's what's so great about being in a community long-term. How many of you consider yourselves part of this community long-term? Whatever that means to you. Yeah. Yeah, so you know the thread of conversation moves through our whole lives. And I think it's one of the precious things about community is as we move through together, as we age together, as we get sick and get well, and, and this family event and somebody sits with us with it and this and that, we really start to see not just the idea that everything is part of the spiritual path, but to live that everything is part of the spiritual path. It's such an important leap uh, that we each make way more than once. Many times we make that leap of seeing, oh, I thought it was compartmentalized, but actually it's everything. So um, do we want to, I'm thinking to turn off the recording so that people can speak more honestly. Is that okay? So I'll just say on my end, I'll offer that for your reflection. I thank you for the kindness of your attention. And then I want to hear from you. It's okay. Yeah, the, the comments serve the community uh, that listens. I think it's still on. <laughs> That's so funny. I turned it off. You said it. And, uh, my fingernails didn't actually... <laughs> Okay. Uh, anyway, so what is on your mind and on your heart this morning, please? Um, first of all, wonderful talk. Mm -hmm. Really hit me in my heart. Thank you. Um, good for that um, 
dealing with our brokenness, the habitual standard pattern, and I'll speak for myself, is self-criticism. Yeah. And, um, you know, putting myself down. Yeah. Can you, talk, you, you, you talked about it briefly when you talked about how you can get, get, move away from the habitual pattern into, into treating your wounds, your brokenness, whatever, yeah. with, with compassion and heart rather than criticism. Yeah. So just to repeat the question in brief, because I know sometimes when it comes this way, it's hard for certain people to hear. Um, the, the question is about um, bringing compassion to, to self-criticism or the, the, the brokenness, and thank you. Um, I actually just taught a whole retreat um, at Spirit Rock the week before I sat my own retreat. Um, the title of the retreat, I, I teach it every year. It's called Transforming the Judgmental Mind. It's a whole week. And it's amazing. You, yeah. <laughs> was there. <laughs> Great. So you can ask Augusta afterwards. She's a graduate of the judgmental mind. Um, uh, so the reason that I say that is because even after a whole week of full-time techniques, practices, explorations in community and teachings, we barely scratch the surface. It's a lifelong path. Um, but... What, um, what I'm finding is that in a general level, in terms of a broad-based framework that really supports that particular brokenness of habitual tendency that we call self-criticism, there seem to be a few parts. Um, one is that when we get really consumed by that self-criticism, that judging mind, um, our whole nervous system gets overactive. You know, we tend to go into it's, the fear is very associated with it. And there's some sort of survival thing going on on a fundamental level, so the nervous system starts getting really, uh, you know, really overactive. And so, this thing about settling the nervous system is not something that's talked about very much in our insight meditation tradition, which is why I've started talking about it more and more and more. Because we need to include not just the body and not just giving lip service to having attention in the body, but we need to work with you know more than the nervous system level. It gets out of whack. Um, so a whole set of teachings with that. Um, secondly, mindfulness. Uh, thirdly, um, the Brahma Viharas. So compassion, loving kindness, joy, and equanimity. Um, what I see is that when the self-criticism gets so strong that it takes over the whole world and everything I see is based on the lenses of, you know, for me, one of mine is I'm not good enough. You know? So it's like everywhere I look, if I, if I put those glasses on and they get stuck on my face, I look at you and it's a nightmare because you're all seeing me as not good enough. You know, and it's real. It feels very real. But it's not true. It's real. But it's not true. Okay? In those moments, bringing in either the formal practice or just the spirit of compassion or loving kindness or equanimity seems to be a really good antidote versus just saying judging or just going, okay, I'm judging. You know, I hope it goes away. Or It, it just seems really helpful um, for a lot of people. 
And so I'm basing this as much on what I'm seeing and working with other people as my own experience. So one thing I do when I notice I'm judging myself a lot is I'll notice, okay, I'm judging, that's mindfulness. And then I'll say, what's going on here? Ah, I'm in pain. I would not be doing this self-judgment if I wasn't in pain. Then I say to myself, I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. Not through a fix-it project, not through becoming a better, less judgmental person, just caring, through the caring. So I run around a lot inside my head. If you put a megaphone to my head, <laughs> a lot, um, you know, Heather running around going, basically the pattern is startle, ah, I care. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a sensitive nervous system here, and I have a particularly sensitive one. Uh, but we all do. You know, so it's like startle, something sets me off. Oh, oh, you know, something set me off. There's some sort of pain going on. I care. I care about this. So, so you're talking about setting the nerves up your first approach. Are you talking about like just burning off through the exercise or physical movement or something like that? Like a, mm -hmm. a physical response to a physical situation? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm putting together a whole body of work on this. Um, again, just because I, I see the insight meditation tradition, it's a little lacking in it. Uh, for example, the Vajrayana tradition is not lacking in it. They, they, you know, so different Buddhist traditions have different. So anything from, yeah, you know, running, taking a walk in nature, feeling your feet on the ground. Um, <coughs> I mean, whole levels of appropriate food intake help support settling the nervous system. Uh, some of the most basic mindfulness practices I've been teaching recently, and again, um, I always feel like I have to say this caveat, they're very obvious. They're so obvious that people don't take them seriously. But the nervous system doesn't care about our adult conceptual mind. <laughs> you know? The nervous system doesn't need something to be at a PhD level in order to be valid. It just needs something simple to settle down. It's reptilian. You know? So a couple mindfulness practices are just um, to take a deeper breath when we notice that we're, you know, you know or we're really locked up in a self-judgment. It's just people always say, it's okay, take a breath. You know, we have societal wisdom on this. But what are we doing when we take a breath? We're settling down. Another one that's really helpful um, is this whole thing about groundedness. So a, a simple way to do that is to just, if we can maintain contact whenever needed and whenever we can with the ground and with our feet on the ground, there's something about that that helps settle the nervous system down. Because when it, the, the nervous system revs, you know, and I'm not a scientist, I'm not an expert in this. I'm a lifelong meditator who has been watching this and training in this. So, you know, some of you know more about this than me, but I know how it works from the inside. So it revs, it revs, it revs, and it tends to move up and it tends to go like this. If we bring our attention down, it settles. It reminds itself of its own equilibrium. Because basically, fundamentally, we all have a basic equilibrium, you know? We all know what it feels like to be grounded and open and free. We just lose it. We come back. So, um, you know, uh, you might want to actually check out some of the Dharma talks on dharmaseed.org from the Judgment Retreat, because there's a lot more there. But. 
free outside. They're free, yeah. They're offered to the wider community. dharmaseed.org. So, what else? That was a, you know, big question, so I felt like I wanted to... I mean, how many people here judge themselves? <laughs> you know, I mean, I just figured if I talked long enough, somebody would get something out of <laughs> So what else? Other themes, please. Uh, I have certain, uh, there are a lot of sort of family upsetting things going on right now. Mm. And so I'm trying to find grounding. And it's hard. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting, that just what you're talking about, the revving grounding. I was over at uh, my nephew's house, and he's extremely politically dogmatic in a way that doesn't agree with me. But it was interesting, because I was just trying to breathe and listen, because I felt like that's what he wanted, his audience, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I was just observing, like, wow, he's really into this. This is, he's really passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And I was feeling almost that little bit of actually pride, like, wow, I'm detaching. <laughs> but then, of course, he asked me, like, so how do you feel? It sounds like you're just detaching, like, you're not paying attention to me. And then I'm like, do you really like? Do you really want to hear my opinion? Because I feel like mostly what people want usually is an audience they usually don't want. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. And so I briefly said, well, I'm going to express how I'm, what's going on inside for me while this is happening, mm. so that you, you know, hopefully you can just hear what's going on inside of me. Mm. So I said two sentences, and then it was like, well, it was like an immediate like onslaught of energy, and I was like, wow, that failed. <laughs> and, then, and then I started the self-criticism of like, oh, I thought I was more evolved than I was. <laughs> that didn't work. And then, That's and, a great story. <laughs> no, I'll tell you why I think it's a great story. And, you know, again, it's like even saying that that's a great story. You're in the story. This is your life. You're not, um, and... To me, the key moment was I failed, right? Because is it true? No. Uh, well, actually, when you were talking, what I thought is, wow, I'm learning. Yeah. Because I, I, I had had this experience before. I sort of decided, okay, rather than really uh, engage in the argument, what in fact he wants more is just he needs to express whatever. Right, right, right. So there he he's expressing. Right. But then, you know, I thought, I'm getting better at this, but then it's like, oops, I could be better. Right, right, because what actually happened was you were working on the very far forward edge of your practice, you know, and my hat's off to you for that. Uh, meaning, you know, this is advanced, right? And you were really, like, bringing forth some very wholesome qualities, as it were. You know, of just being able to have a lightness and, oh, look at that, instead of, you know, detachment and all this. And then you're actually able to engage him in conversation, move it from the internal to the external. And then his response was not the preferred outcome. <laughs> and that is equanimity practice. Equanimity practice says, I have my path, you have your path, 
and I care about you. And I have my path and you have your path. So my path is that I'm doing this whole practice and I just engaged and I told you what I thought and your path is that you're gonna have a total reaction to that. I care about you and moving on already. And that same attitude of, oh, isn't that interesting? Look, he just totally said that he wanted to hear it, but actually he just freaked out. Wow, so one moment he wanted to hear it and then change happened and 30 seconds later, he didn't want to hear it. But when he said he wanted to hear it, well, I don't know if he wanted to hear it when he said he wanted to hear it, but there might have been an openness. It's like it opened, and then it shut. But it doesn't mean that the openness didn't happen. You know? It's so, but in real time, when we're actually having a conversation, and there's a lot of charge, and it's a family member, this is really advanced. You know? And yeah, you really got to see how that thought set off, you know, put on those glasses again. Oh, I failed. I failed. And you know you didn't fail, and I know you didn't fail. And I really appreciate you bringing it into the community because I bet that sometime in the next month, somebody is going to here is going to be having a conversation with somebody, and the thought is going to come up: I failed, and they might remember your process. Yeah, so this is a gift to share that um, honestly. Thank you. I do see the time. <laughs> so to be continued, I'll try to come back as soon as I can. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.